You can turn in your Bibles to Luke. We finally made it through chapter 12. We're in chapter 13. While you're getting there, I'll say, you know, for some reason, we seem to be captivated by tragedy. Our headlines are typically consumed with terrible things that have happened in our world. You know, a a condo collapsed in Miami, or an apartment building collapsed, killing many, or when there's an avalanche on Mount Everest and it kills 21 people, it hits our headlines and, and we read about it and we hear about it. When there's a school shooting somewhere in our nation, it, it grabs the headlines. Not only that, but true crime and sort of the description of some of these atrocities that happen, murders and, and such, they, they dominate TV shows and podcasts. This fascination with catastrophe and, and tragedy even, even goes back into the way that we read history. Whole books and movies are made about the sink, sinking of the Titan, Titanic. Books written, movies made about the atrocities of World War II. There's podcasts and books on evil dictators. And not only that, but we have natural disasters that we can think about and read about from the pages of history. And so it's, it's prevalent in us, as it was, I think, in this culture in which Jesus was uh, addressing the crowd. It's prevalent in us to think about the frailty and the suffering and the death of others while seeking to avoid considering our own frailty our own susceptibility to suffering, and our own inevitable death. We're captivated by the news, but we fail to discern what that news should be teaching us about ourselves, specifically about our own susceptibility, not just to tragedy in this life, but to eternal suffering, eternal tragedy. There's lessons for us to learn in these catastrophes. So in our text this morning, Jesus takes the headlines of the day and he applies it to the crowd. This is what it means for you. Specifically, he teaches this, that one of the purposes, now there's multiple purposes of God and suffering and tragedy, but one of the purposes of our suffering and even or even hearing about tragedy is to teach us that we must turn to the Lord today in order to avoid eternal suffering. So let's see if we can find that in the text. And that's not just some clever twist on something that we found in the Bible. Let's see if we can see why we would say those things about what Jesus is is teaching here. The first thing I think we see is the re- the necessity of repentance in verses 1 through 5. The reality of tragedy is meant to teach us the necessity of repentance. In verse 1, there were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So for the the third time since chapter 12 started, Jesus is interrupted by someone in the crowd. And so Jesus' call, then, if you remember the context, if you've been here, if not, we'll try to catch you up. Chapter 12 ended with Jesus giving a parable, warning people, settle your account with the Lord while you're sort of, the language is, while you're on the way, before it's too late. 
Because if you go before the judge, it's too late. The verdict is sure. You're guilty. The sentence will be handed down. And at that point, it's too late. So, so settle your account. Turn to Christ today while you can. Because death comes like a thief in the night and Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. So turn and respond today while you can. So apparently this, this sort of instruction to settle your account before time runs out and judgment falls, it provokes a response from the crowd. Apparently, it, it seems as if, at least in the context, that this warning of impending judgment brings to mind a, a specific headline about other people who are suffering. Well, is this the sort of judgment you're talking about, Jesus? These Galileans who were put to death by the Roman governor of Judea, Pilate. And so what we see before we dive into Jesus' response is there's these two different sorts of tragedies. The first one is brought up by the crowd. Jesus is the one who brings up the second type of Tragedy. The, the first is found there in verse 1. We might call it tragedy or catastrophe at the hands of other people. Tragedy by human hands. In this case, it's at the hands of the Roman government, specifically Pilate. The Romans were well known to use whatever tactic necessary to stifle any kind of dissension, any kind of unrest. And they would often result to violence in order to maintain a semblance of peace. And as you know, you know there was no love lost between the, the, the Jews and the Roman government. And we know that Pilate would do whatever it took to not upset the higher-ups. That's what we see at the end of Luke. That's why he turns over Jesus. I can't have a riot on my hands, so whatever, whatever it takes. He also had a history of using violence to maintain the peace. You know, we don't know a whole lot about this incident of, of Galileans being put to death here. They, they may have been trying to undermine the Roman government in some way. We don't know. We can at least piece together this. It was likely during Passover when, when Galileans would be going to the temple in order to offer a sacrifice that Pilate had a certain number of them put to death. He ordered them to die and the sentence was delivered at the temple or near the temple at least. You know, it's, it's that their, their blood was mixed with the sacrifices. It, it's a, it's a play on words of saying they were on their way to offer these sacrifices. And this tragedy, this suffering, this catastrophe, it came at the hands of men. But there's another type of tragedy there in verse 4. Jesus brings this one up. Or those 18 on whom the, the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. This might be called tragedy by natural causes. What from the outside we would say, man, this looks like in accident. This isn't violence handed down from the Roman government. This isn't murder. This is an unfortunate accident. Siloam was a small reservoir 
uh, of water located at the juncture of uh, one of the corners of the Jerusalem wall. They may have been repairing the wall. Again, we don't know a whole lot about what happened here outside of what Jesus told us. Maybe they're repairing this wall and the wall fell. The tower fell. No one is, no one is necessarily at fault here. No one ordered these men to be killed. You know, when insurance companies try to delineate between how they're going to cover something, they have things that are, that are your fault, right? Or someone else's fault even. And then they have actually what they call, even to this day, acts of God. Like no one is really responsible. No one did anything really dumb. No one definitely caused this. It's an act of God. Although in, in this case, an insurance company would likely argue that the tower wasn't built well and they're not liable. But based on everything we know, this would be one of those instances. No one is to blame. No one is at fault. And it's hard to even imagine how it could have been prevented. So you've got this suffering at the hands of men. You've got these acts of God or you've got these, these unfortunate accidents. But notice then that Jesus actually treats these the same way. He asks the same question. Are they worse sinners? Or are they worse offenders than those who did not experience death that day? If tragedy befell on them, whether it was at the, the hands of the Roman government or whether it was an accident, are they worse than the other Galileans? Are they worse than the others that were in Jerusalem that day? So what Jesus does with the question is he sets out to undermine a pretty common assumption about tragedy. Again, whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's being sinned against in some grievous way. And here's what, he's, here, here's what he's seeking to undermine, this thought that the presence of suffering or the presence of some catastrophe must mean that God is punishing that person particularly for their personal sin. Jesus is undermining this. And we need that to be undermined, I think, in our thinking this morning. Isn't that how we... We want to think at times. Don't you view a wildfire in California different than a wildfire in South Dakota? They're getting what they deserve. This is an unfortunate accident. Well, we need this to be undermined in our own souls. This is the problem that Job, Job's friends had. This was the counsel that they gave. They were, you know, what Zach Eswine called theological simpletons. They took true theology and applied it the wrong way. So their line of thinking went something like, well, God punishes evil. Certainly looks like you're being punished, Job. So you must be being punished for evil. This suffering that you're experiencing, Job, is a direct result of your own sin. You know, you know what Job said in light of their counsel? You are all miserable comforters. All of you. More importantly, God says of their counsel, my anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Why? Because they assumed that the suffering of Job had to have been the result of his own sin. They misrepresented God, and so God's anger burned against them. 
And so Jesus is making sure this morning that the crowd doesn't make the same mistake, making sure that we don't make the same mistake in misrepresenting God and missing the very lesson that God intends in suffering or tragedy. He won't allow the self-righteous assumption of the crowd to stand, that they died because they're not as righteous as I am. They are they died, so they must have been worse than me. So whether it's suffering at the hands of men or an unfortunate accident, inexplicable suffering, it does not necessarily imply that this is the direct result of their individual sin. It, 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 it is in places, right? Herod was put to death because he did not glorify God. But we don't want to make an assumption based on our own self-righteous attitudes. And then, therefore, we don't want to make the opposite error either. We are in danger then, like probably the crowd here, to assume that a lack of suffering on their part means that they must be under the approval of the Lord. God's smile must be upon them because they did not die in this tragedy. We reject out of hand any kind of prosperity gospel that it's necessarily in this life God's will for you to be healthy and rich and prosperous in every way. Who was prosperous in Luke chapter 12? The rich fool. Did he have the divine approval of the Lord? Absolutely not. His soul was required of him. He had to stand before the Lord, and he couldn't bring any of his riches that he was banking on. He was bankrupt before the Lord. He had no standing before God. So for us this morning, we, we don't get to run to our own wisdom. We don't get to make our own assumptions. We have to look at what God has revealed to us in his word about the meaning of tragedy. One of the purposes of tragedy, anyways. What about your suffering? Do you tend to fall into this category? When, when you suffer at the hands of others or, or something that was outside of your control, do you assume something about the Lord? Do you assume that he's, He must be against you? Maybe it's the... Uh, the ache of and the intense suffering of infertility. Maybe it's walking through a difficult divorce, chronic pain, or the grief associated with losing a, a loved one. It's good for us. It's good for us to go to the text and to see what God is up to in the midst of suffering, whether it's ours or it's something that we hear about in the headlines. The reality is we can't know what God is up to in every instance, specifically anyways. God is doing a million things in the lives of a billion people every day. And we don't get to see every little detail that God is working out that, that He knows that we don't. But we do know some, some big, broad categories, like in everything God is seeking to make much of Himself to glorify Himself. Romans eleven thirty six for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We can trust as well that in, in, in the suffering of God's people that God is working to sanctify us. 
All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. So God is sanctifying his people through suffering. We know that God is preparing us and pointing us to an eternity where there is no more suffering. The sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So it's good for us to rehearse some of the things that God is up to personally. But then the question remains, okay, but what about things I'm just hearing? You hear about people slain by a wicked government. What do we do with that? How do we process calamity? How do we process the presence of tragedy? You see, those things we read about in chapter 13, they're more like headlines in the Jerusalem Post. Galileans slain by Roman governments. Or 18 dead in tower collapse. What do we do? You know, even this week, when you hear about the author Salman Rushdie stabbed in an apparent assassination attempt, what what, what do we do with that? When we hear about another public school shooting or a grocery store or in, in less than a month from now when they're airing footage from 9-11 and re- reminding all of us the brutality of those attacks. Well, again, we need to be humble here and willing to admit that we don't, we don't see the micro design of God. But even in these, these tragedies, we know that God is doing something. Well, what's he doing? Specifically, in our passage, one of the things that God is doing is reminding us to repent while the time is at hand, while we still have time to repent. So we're we're warned not to assume anything about the, the spiritual nature of those who were killed and not to assume that we are in a safe place just because life has gone well for us. Tragedies teach us about the frailty of human life, the reality of death, the certainty of death. But more importantly, most importantly, it reminds us of the necessity of knowing God. Tragedy is a warning that we are all in danger of perishing. Not just from a tower collapse or from a wicked government, we're all in danger of eternal perishing. That's what these tragedies are meant to teach us and to remind us about. You know, when, so, so, so when Jesus says, you know, you will likewise perish, right? Unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. Well, likewise can't mean in the exact same way, right? Because we're not all going to die from a tower falling on us. It also can't just mean you're, you're going to die too physically. Because repentance changes the course and you don't perish when you repent. But you will die physically. So I think what Jesus is talking about is the, the, the threat of eternal perishing, eternal suffering, separated from the, the, the love and grace and mercy of God for all eternity. So the most fundamental question for for us this morning is not how will I die or when will I die, 
But the most fundamental question is, have I taken hold of the very instruction of Christ by which I might avoid eternal perishing, eternal suffering? That's what Jesus does there in verse 3 and verse 5. He he repeats himself, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, verse 5, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So for Jesus here, repentance is the means by which you avoid eternal suffering, eternal judgment. Obviously, Jesus' audience here, the initial audience, is is the crowd, which we've said here pictures Israel and their rejection of Christ, God's covenant people, calling them to repent and to receive their Messiah. But we know that, that in the book of Acts, the work of Christ and the call of Christ is not just for Israel, that all people everywhere are commanded to repent. So what is this repentance? Repentance is, you know, an easy definition for people. It's a change of mind. It's a change of thinking that results in a change of direction. For the crowd, it would, it would mean doing what the disciples have done, which is leaving everything and following Jesus. So repentance involves turning away from our own sinful desires and our own sinful life and turning to the Lord. It's turning to Christ. Thomas Watson said that repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six ingredients. He says, first, there's a sight of sin. You have to be given eyes to see the the terrible nature of sin. And by God's grace, that's followed by a sorrow for sin, a grief over sin. But we know that we, we know that just grief is not in itself an indication of true repentance. Watson said that needs to be followed by a confession of sin to God, to admit and to uh, agree with the Lord that your diagnosis over me is accurate. I am sinful. And there's a shame for sin, a guilt, and a hatred, Watson says. How do you know you've how do you know the Spirit has worked in you? Do you hate your sin? Because that's not, the, that's not the course of the one who has not been acted upon by the Lord. And finally, he says there's a turning from sin and turning to the Lord. You think about this crowd here. Well, what, what, was, what was Jesus hoping that they would see? What was the sin that he would hope to highlight in them? Well, one of the the primary things that was blinding them to the glory of Jesus was their own self-righteousness. It was their own legalistic practices, their own confidence in themselves was blinding them to seeing who Christ is and, and trusting in him that he is the Son of Man who has come to deliver sinners from their sin. If you haven't seen your sin, how can you confess it and hate it and acknowledge it and sorrow over it? They wanted to compare themselves with others. And they took comfort in the fact that they're better than those. They must have been better than those who died in that accident over there. So Jesus is calling them to repent, not only of the the things that when we say sin, they come to mind, you know, these outward sins. He's calling them to repent of their their own self-righteousness. So this morning, 
if you have come to the Lord in repentant faith and trusted in Him, that, that Jesus Christ is the only sufficient and final payment for sin, then don't take the presence of suffering or the presence of tragedy necessarily as God's punishment on you. There's no punishment to be left. It was all poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's discipline. You might seek counsel from wise people around you and say, is the Lord working in me to discipline me? But don't assume that this is God's rejection of you because you are accepted, not because your life is going well. You are accepted in and through the work of Christ. But the opposite is true. If you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not turned to Him as Savior, don't assume that because your life has gone smooth, it's gone relatively well, you were born in the most prosperous country in the history of the world, and your suffering level has been relatively minor. Don't assume that it was God's approval of your life. Our approval From God only comes through Jesus Christ. Look only to Him. Don't look at your circumstances to try to figure that out. So we see here then the the necessity of repentance. But as we've, we've seen really, even from the beginning of Luke and throughout the rest of the Gospels and the New Testament, this genuine, true repentance is followed by a desire to walk in obedience. And I think that's why Jesus then turns immediately to the necessity of bearing fruit. The reality, number two this morning, the reality of repentance is seen in bearing fruit. Look there in verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on the fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now, fruit is obviously a, a metaphor, it's a picture of, of the evidence of true repentance. All right, you can tell a tree is an apple tree if it has apples hanging from its, its branches. Right, so, so fruit is, is evidence of what the, the person is made up of. You can recognize a Christian by the fact that she bears the fruit of righteousness. Now, this is over, over the course of her life, or his or her life. Right? I'm not saying the, the presence of the, the flesh and the pull of flesh means we're not bearing fruits. But this is what John the Baptist meant when he was talking to the the crowds, and he said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You've, You've turned initially to the Lord. Now demonstrate the reality of that turning through a desire to love God and to love others. Paul said it this way when he's describing his his ministry to King Agrippa in Acts 26. He says, I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should what? Repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's why Paul can differentiate between godly sorrow over sin and worldly sorrow over sin. 
One of the differences, godly sorrow turns and seeks to produce fruit in keeping with their repentance. So again, if, if the initial audience is Israel, Jesus is rebuking them for their lack of fruit. By and large, throughout the history of Israel, and certainly during the time of Jesus' ministry where he is about to suffer utter rejection, the covenant people of God lacked repentance, and therefore they lacked the fruit of repentance. But again, they, they couldn't see their own fruitlessness. They couldn't see their own barrenness. So Jesus uses this parable to demonstrate then the tragic consequences of a fruitless people. So in this parable, I think we see both God's displeasure, and I think we see God's patience. God's displeasure, and we see God's patience. I read verses 6 and 7. That's, that's God's displeasure. A healthy fig tree would bear fruit once a year. So in the proper season, the owner of the garden comes to check for fruit, and he finds once again that this particular fig tree has no fruit. You know, it's not because the owner is not looking. It's not because of his own negligence. He has consistently examined the tree for three years now, the text says. And again, we, you know, when we're reading parables, we don't want to press details too hard. There's a story about a man who went to a tree three years in a row and there was no fruit. We went, oh, how long was Jesus' ministry? Oh, three years. Well, we don't want to play number games with, with the text. We want to understand what genre we're reading here. It's a story that Jesus is using to drive home a specific point. But one has to begin to wonder, when you have a fruit tree that doesn't bear fruit, how long do you allow the tree to remain in the garden? At some point, it's better to cut down the tree and to plant another tree that's going to truly bear fruit. Now, this is not just a gardening tip from Jesus. You know, I had to Google, like, what is the study of fruit trees? Pomology. This isn't just that. It's a scathing rebuke of the crowd. That... The, the, the God that you claim to love and to know and to serve, the God that you claim to be in covenant with, that has set you apart for a people, for his own possession, the God you claim to worship and sacrifice to, he's examined you and he's found you wanting. He's examined you and there's no fruit, there's no evidence there that you've repented. There's no evidence that you've turned to him, that you love him. That you're thankful for His mercy in your, in your life. The prospect then of continuing in this state of fruitlessness in this parable is the tree is going to be cut down. To use the words of verses 1 through 5, they're, they're going to perish. They're going to perish. So Israel here is on the edge of judgment and God is giving them a, another opportunity a little more time to turn and to repent. You see that in, in verses 8 and 9. You see God's patience, God's undeserved patience. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, 
you can cut it down. Now the vine dresser in the garden says, you know, let me, let me loosen up the soil around the tree so that moisture, when it falls, maybe has a greater chance to get down there into the roots. Let me put some fertilizer around the tree, and we'll give it another year and see if we don't see some fruit by then. Again, we don't want to press it. Well, there's a, there's a good owner and there's a vine dresser. Is this God debating it? No, this is just a picture of God's patience alongside his displeasure. So God is such a patient God. And we saw in Bible Hour last week the, the, the patience of the Lord. It, it gives people time to repent. And, and this demonstration of kindness is meant to bring people to a place of Repentance. Remember Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Notice, you know, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but the patience here is from the character of the vine dresser, not that anything, not that they can look at the tree and say, man, there is actually some hope here. This is actually a pretty good tree. Let's give it, it just needs more time. There's nothing in the tree that, that should cause the vine dresser to exercise patience at this point. So God is, God is demonstrating his patience here, but the time is running dangerously low. Next year, the tree will be cut down and removed from the garden. You know, even last week, we, we saw that repeatedly we're warned in Scripture not to mistake the patience of God, the long-suffering of God, for a lack of concern about justice. For a lack of concern about exercising judgments. Clearly, the crowd stands in a perilous position here. It's only a matter of time until the tree will be felled. In the words of John the Baptist from Way back in Luke chapter 3, the axe is laying at the base of the tree. He's giving them a chance. He's preaching. He's proclaiming. He's he's warning. And and in the warnings, there's an implied response. But if you repent, you won't perish. And this story, this parable, it's left open-ended. The prospect of, of Israel turning and bearing fruit, it seems slim given their history and the hardness of their own hearts, but there's still time. There's time, Jesus is saying. Time for them to hear the warning. Time for them to follow Christ. Time to see the miracles of Christ for what they are, signs pointing to who He is and what He has come to accomplish. Time to submit themselves to the authoritative teaching of Jesus Christ. Yet because of their hardness of heart, we know as Scripture develops, by and large, they would continue to reject Jesus. We know that in the book of Acts, that, that through, uh, e- even though some individual, you know, there's priests coming to faith, there's Israelites coming to faith. Though there are some who would come to Christ, by and large, the nation remained in unbelief. And this opened the door for the gospel to spread to the nations, to go to the Gentiles. This was the mystery of the gospel. That the new covenant would apply not just to Israel, but to, to the nations. As God gathers for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and 
nation. So here we see the saving plan of God unfolding for the gospel to go to the world. I do think there are then individual, there's an, there's an individual application we can walk away from this as well. There are individual warnings that we should hear as well. What is true about the way Jesus is warning Israel can teach us this morning the same, same message. The result of fruitlessness is being cut down or perishing. One of the primary ways that God gives us to evaluate our standing before God is the presence or absence of fruit, evidence. So the question for us this morning is, am I producing fruit in keeping with repentance? Our assurance is not found in the fact that maybe we came up in a Christian family. It's not found in the fact that that you or I got really emotional one day at, at an altar. Or that, you know, when we just sing those old hymns, my eyes get teary. You know, these aren't bad things, but they aren't the basis, the ground of our assurance in Scripture. You know, I've said this to you before, but I hear preachers say that sometimes. You know, 1 John 5.13, these things are written unto you so that you may know you have eternal life. Now, did you write down in your Bible the day you prayed a prayer? But that's not what John says. John says, do you love your brothers? Do you love God's people? Do you love the church? Do you hate the world? Has your relationship with sin changed? Where, where you once loved your sin and went full bore into your sin and thought and were convinced that this sin will give me joy and gladness. Now you know that sin destroys, and even though the, you're deceived at times and you, the pull of this world and the pull of the flesh is still strong and we sin and Against God, we hate that sin. Why? Because we've repented. We have a changed direction. We have a new Lord. His name is Jesus, not King Sin over here. So some questions for us to consider. Do I prefer God? Do I prefer Him? Or does the world win out for my affections? Do I love others? It's amazing to me how often Jesus returns to, here's the command I give you, love one another. Do I love others? Paul would say, "He, he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So one of, the, one of the signs that I've truly repented that I'm bearing fruit is that I'm not living for this little kingdom of self anymore. I've been set free from that. I can live for Christ, and I demonstrate this life for Christ in the way that I love others. But notice that the question is about fruit, not about perfection. It's about evidence, not perfection. So do when I was working with teenagers, I would, I would ask them this question. Do you hate your sin, and do you hate it enough to at least fight? There may be seasons where you feel like you're not putting up a very good fight. But do you hate your sin enough to fight? Do I mourn over sin? Do I want to grow? Do I desire to grow in Christ? So the evidence of Repentance is just that. It is evidence. It is not the basis or the ground of our forgiveness. 
We aren't forgiven of our sins because we have fruit. Instead, we have fruit because we are forgiven of our sins. So if we were to sort of put these two paragraphs together, we might say it this way. Don't, because remember, there's this implied warning that the tree is going to be cut down because it's fruitless. So if we put these two together, we might say it this way. Don't be amazed at the news that a tower fell over and killed some people. Or don't be amazed at the news that Pilate is murdering people. Be amazed that God has been patient with you in giving you time to turn to Him. And He then empowers you to walk in righteousness and obedience. So we are wrapping up another, I would say, hard saying from Jesus. It's a really difficult statement. But again, inside the warnings are calls to turn and to find life, to find eternal life in Christ. I heard the story this week of a a pastor who was guest preaching in another church and you know, before the service began, this guy was talking to the pastor of that church that invited him, and, and the pastor said, you know, I, I hope that you're not going to make my people uncomfortable this morning. Please don't mention anything about the reality of, of hell or the presence of eternal suffering. I'd hate for anyone here to sort of get squeamish or feel uncomfortable. And so the guy that was getting up to getting ready to preach, he said, Oh, I would never, I would never say anything like that without your permission. And so in the middle of the sermon, he gets to John 3.16, and he pauses dramatically after each line. He says, For God so loved the world, long pause for dramatic effect, that he gave his only begotten son, long pause, that those who believe in him, long pause. Shall not, he looked at the guy who invited him and said, can I continue? Shall not perish. You see, the warning of judgment serves to highlight the grace of God. The reality of eternal judgment and suffering highlights the kindness and mercy of God. And what tragedy does here is it reminds us that we should have suffered. We should have suffered, not just, not just suffering in this life, but in the next. Tragedy points us to the warning of judgment, and the warning of judgment highlights the grace of God in Jesus, Jesus Christ. So whenever you see or hear suffering, when you read the gut-wrenching headline, when you read a history book and it's recording all of these atrocities, we ought to be thinking, I deserve that. I deserve that sort of treatment, but more than that, I deserve beyond that. You know what? I shouldn't just stop there. The goal isn't just for me to feel guilty. The goal is to turn my eyes to Christ and to rejoice that the mission of Jesus Christ was to come and suffer this tragedy that I won't have to suffer eternal torments. We might say it this way, the greatest tragedy in the history of the world the cross, produce the greatest good. Because as Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's taking in himself the penalty and punishment for sins. For all those who would come humbly to him, 
fall on their knees and confess their, state, their status as a sinner in need of God's grace. For all those who Jesus would repent, or as John 3.16 says, would believe in the gospel. Christ has taken on himself the worst form of suffering so that we will not perish in the ultimate sense. Jesus said this about his sheep in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one who repents will perish. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are guilty at times of taking our salvation so lightly, of assuming that, that maybe we were smarter than others or more righteous than others, Lord, but your word reminds us that there's none who loves you, there's none who seeks you, there's none who does good, there's no one righteous, yet you chose before the foundation of the world to place your love upon us to accomplish our salvation in Jesus Christ and apply it to us through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. May we rejoice and rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen.